Our most gracious Father, we thank You that Your Word speaks so much wisdom into our lives. Unfathomable wisdom. Unsearchable wisdom. That we can never fully wrap our finite minds around in this life. And so we pray that through the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, we would have understanding of this text. And that we would see ourselves and that we would see our desperate need for Christ as a result of Your Word and Your Spirit working within us for the glory of Christ. We commit this time to His glory. Amen. Well, everybody has their favorite parables, right? We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14 today. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And yeah, everybody has their favorite parables. Um, You know, the most common ones are probably the parable of the Good Samaritan, or uh, the parable of the the prodigal son, or the prodigal father, as as I call it, since prodigal means extravagant or, or over the top, and God's love is just so over the top. But for me, my favorite parable is the one that we're going to be looking at today, hands down. I mean, there, there's nothing even close in my mind uh, as, as grand, as beautiful, as, as glorious as the parable that we're looking at today. And I've tried to save the best for last, but this actually isn't going to be the last parable that we look at. Um, we've got a, I, I'm trying to end this study that we've been doing for almost two years now. Uh, the same time I end our Genesis study, which I, we've also been doing for almost two years now. So we've got a couple more to look at after this one. But in many ways, I feel like I've already preached this parable about a hundred times. If you, if you listen to my preaching regularly, you know that I refer to this parable over and over and over again, but this is my first shot at actually preaching it directly from the text. Um, but if the Lord is willing, I hope to, uh, to preach it at least one more time one day when I do a book study through, uh, through Luke's Gospel. But like so many other parables... A lot of people get confused with this parable. Some people get this parable completely wrong when it comes to interpreting it. Um, as, I, as I sat down earlier this week to listen to a sermon on this passage, uh, the pastor started off by saying that this parable is a lesson in how to pray. No, it's not. It is not a lesson on how to pray. The reason that people reach that conclusion is pretty obvious. The reason is probably, I think, because the passage which leads up to this parable is the parable of the persistent widow. And, of course, the purpose of that uh, parable did have something to do with praying. It was to encourage the church to pray to the Lord when it feels like the world is about to end, which is almost always these days, right? Right? And it's easy enough to get confused about the purpose of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, therefore, I suppose. But, but here's what we have to understand. For each one of the parables, but, but more, more than that, for each one of the gospel narratives, each one of the gospel accounts, the author is taking us, taking his readers down a road that leads to the cross that ultimately leads to the cross where Christ was crucified, where He bore the sins of His people, and where He died. And each of the Gospel authors just has kind of a different way of of taking us to the same place. 
But we must understand that everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said that's recorded in Scripture for us is all stuff that happened on the road to the cross. So it's all somehow pointing us to the cross. So what we have to learn to do is to view all that we read in all of the Gospel accounts in the shadow of the cross that's cast backwards across the text. And this one is no different. This text is no different. If you want to develop some really bad theology, don't try to see how a certain text points us to our need for Jesus. Don't try to see how a certain text leads us to Calvary. The reason I love this parable so much, the reason it is indeed so dear to me, is because it asks a question that is far more important than how do I pray? Or even what should I pray? Can you think of a more important question than those? Of course you can. How about what kind of a life pleases God? What kind of an attitude does God find acceptable? How can even the worst sinner in history ever possibly be reconciled to a just and holy God? And what hope does a wretched sinner like me have before a holy God who must punish all sin? And this parable is going to give us a crystal clear answer to these questions. The most important questions that a person can possibly ask. And so we have to understand that this is not a parable about prayer per se. No, it's a parable about salvation. It's a prayer about what is necessary to be saved. Or it's a parable about what is necessary to be saved. And so we see the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. We studied that. I don't know, a year ago, a year and a half ago. But then Luke deliberately switches gears. He, he switches gears very obviously. Look at, look at verse 9 with me. In verse 9, Luke tells us that Jesus tells another parable, but he's very specific about the reason that Jesus switches to this parable. So look at verse 9 with me. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, Jesus is, is he, and he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. There you go. There's the purpose of this parable. There's the audience. There's the, the, the person that he is trying to reach. The reason that Jesus tells this parable is because there were people following him. There were people who were listening to him. There were people who were watching him perform miracles. And there are people who were often interrogating him, as we see in many of uh, the texts, you know, throughout the gospel narratives. And these people were guilty of two sins, two very specific, enormous sins. First, look what it says. It says, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. These were people who thought highly of themselves. But not only did they think highly of themselves, but they had a confidence in themselves, in the goodness that they felt that they had before God that was sinful to God. These were people who had looked into Jesus' eyes. These were people who had heard the gospel preached from the lips of Jesus. 
They'd heard him preach that the, the, the kingdom was at hand and that they must repent and believe the gospel. And yet, these were people who saw no need to repent. No need to do what Jesus was instructing everybody to do. See, the day is coming when every single soul, every single one of us, will be judged. And what will God's judgment be based on? It will be based on the degree, or lack thereof, of your righteousness. Acts 17.31 says this. It says, he has fixed, speaking of God, He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. So who's this man? It's the man who was raised from the dead. What man could possibly be appointed to such an incredible and important task? The only man who's qualified is the one who raised from the dead, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who never sinned, whose righteousness was unblemished, both fully man and fully God. When you stand before this man, when you stand before Christ Jesus in judgment, your righteousness must match His. It must be as high as Jesus' own righteousness. And how do you think that you will fare on that day by that standard? Jesus said that our righteousness must be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees, who were regarded as the most righteous men on the earth in Jesus' day by the general population. Well, how will you even compare to them? Much less, how will you compare to Christ? See, you and I and everybody else on the planet will be judged. We will have to stand before the Lord. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And listen very carefully to me when I say this. There is absolutely, unequivocally, nothing that you have ever done in your life, nothing that you could be doing with your life, and nothing that you could do with your life in the future that is more important than being ready for that day when you will stand before Christ. Listen, if you figured out something really huge, if you figured out, let's say, how to solve world hunger, how to, how to, how to get rid of world hunger forever, that'd be a pretty big thing, right? That'd be a pretty significant accomplishment. But it wouldn't be as important as preparing yourself for the day when you stand before Christ. Everything else is so insignificant in comparison. And yet, for those people who trust in themselves, who trust in their own goodness, who trust in their own righteousness, not only will they be completely unprepared for that day, but they'll also live their lives thinking that they are ready for that day. If you think of the people who go to the beach and they consider themselves to be fairly good swimmers, and they see a sign that says, beware of the tide, there are excellent swimmers that get drowned out in the ocean. They get dragged out to sea by a tide, by an, by an undercurrent, and they die. Why? Because they trusted in their ability to swim, but there was something that they were not and could not have been prepared to face. Do you see how that works? 
They thought, they trusted in their own ability. And this is exactly the first sin of the people Jesus was preaching to here. Like children, or like people who feel more than capable, who are able to, to you know, swim in a swimming pool where there is no undercurrent. You know, the, these people trusted in themselves. They trusted in their own abilities. They trusted in their own goodness, their own righteousness before God. You know, when, when a child does that and, and ends up, you know, say, drowning in a pool, um, that's, that's just innocent ambition. You know, a, a young child, we don't expect them to, to know how to swim, but they are often ambitious enough and curious enough to think that they can. But when an adult does it, when somebody who's capable of reasoning does it before God, when it comes to righteousness, it is completely sinful because God's Word has always made it abundantly clear that no man on the face of the earth, no son of Adam, has a righteousness that could qualify him for heaven because no son of Adam has a righteousness that matches God's own righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, Paul goes through what I I call just a laundry list of man's depravity, of of the iniquities of of mankind. He says this, he says, as it is written, and, and by the way, when he says that, he's quoting from the Old Testament as it is written in the Old Testament. It means he's quoting from texts that the scribes and the Pharisees and everybody else who's self-righteous in Jesus' time and in Paul's time would have been completely familiar with. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Not even one. This is God's assessment as He looks out over humanity's hearts. If there is one who is, good, is, is not good, if there's nobody who's good, if there's nobody who's righteous, if there's nobody who, who does any of this, how can anybody go to heaven? If there's nobody who's good, nobody who's righteous, who could possibly be accepted by God? If we're not good, if we are not righteous, what hope? What hope could we possibly have? Here's the bad news. Without a righteousness that is equal to God's own righteousness, you will not be allowed into heaven. Scripture is very clear about that. Instead, you will suffer under God's holy and just wrath for eternity. And the Word of God declares that there are, really, there, there are ultimately only two destinations. There's heaven and there's hell. And one of them, heaven, requires that an individual has God's own perfect righteousness. So if that's true, then where will those who have fallen short of His righteousness deserve to end up? Everything in the Old Testament points to the fact that even the smallest sin is an offense to God. And thus, even the smallest sin requires cleansing. Everything in the Old Testament points to each individual's need for a perfect sacrifice. Everything in the Old Testament points to each individual's need for a Savior. And the people that Jesus is preaching to all missed it. They missed it. 
In Romans chapter 10, Paul says this in in verse 3. He says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. These are people who had a zeal for God. But their zeal was not in accordance with knowledge, according to verse 2. So these people knew about God, but they did not know God. And the reason that Paul knew that is the same reason we can know that, and that is because they trusted in their own righteousness. They trusted in their own goodness. And this is the danger of trusting in yourself and trusting in your own goodness. It is a clear pathway to hell. But before you say, well, well, that's not me, and you nudge the guy next to you or the woman next to you, you have to understand that there are absolutely millions and millions of variations of this sin. Have you ever thought to yourself that maybe you could make yourself more acceptable to God by just being a better person? Or by doing something nice to somebody or for somebody? Then you're guilty of this. Have you ever thought to yourself that you'll be more acceptable to God if you take up a certain cause, which is what everybody in our culture is doing these days? Then you're guilty of this. Why? Because you're trusting in these things to make you more presentable to God. Which means you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in your own actions, you're trusting in your own works to make you as righteous as Christ rather than seeing your unrighteousness for what it is. You're trusting in your actions. You're trusting in what you were able to do to make you more presentable before God. See, moralism, being a moral person, is a good thing, but it is not the gospel. Social justice, it's a good thing, but it's not the gospel. It's a consequence of the gospel. And the gospel is necessary because you're not moral. I'm not moral. The gospel is necessary because nobody is perfectly moral. And people who see themselves as somehow, for some reason, being worthy of God's love because of their high degree of morality don't see their need to be saved. Let me say it again. People who see themselves as worthy of God's love and acceptance in and of themselves because they're so moral aren't going to see their need to be saved. They don't see their need for the gospel. They don't understand, they don't see how defiled they are, even by the smallest sin. All that morality does is make a person's journey to hell more rigid. Maybe more self-deprived because it creates the illusion, the illusion that one's righteousness is enough. That one's own righteousness is pleasing to God. That one's own righteousness is sufficient for them to get into heaven. And so they trust in that. They trust in their own righteousness. And this is what every cult, this is what every world religion is is all about ultimately it's all about doing this so that you're pleasing to god or doing that so that god will accept you thereby making yourself acceptable to god it's all about growing and, and underscoring and displaying one's own righteousness and billions of people around the world literally billions today and throughout history have trusted in that 
in their religion that they used to try to make themselves more acceptable to God. And that's the first thing that characterized these people to whom Jesus was preaching. They trusted in their own righteousness. They thought that their own righteousness was sufficient. They couldn't imagine that God would not be pleased or maybe even impressed with their righteousness. So the first thing that characterized them is that they were self-righteous. That they trusted in their own righteousness and thought that it would be pleasing to God. The second thing that characterized them actually flows from the first. Luke tells us that they viewed others with contempt. Let me say this as clearly and as articulately as I can. The relationship between trusting in your own goodness or righteousness and viewing others with contempt is a cause and effect relationship. That is, if you trust in your own goodness, if you, if you think too highly of yourself, it is inevitable that you will eventually, in some way, view others with contempt. Now, what does that even mean? What does it mean to, to view somebody with contempt? It means to view somebody as having less inherent value than you have. To, to view somebody as having less uh, inherent importance or worth than you have. So how does that play out? Well, racism, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what about sexism? Ab- absolutely. Those two things are, are, are completely sinful for that reason. It's viewing somebody else with contempt, viewing somebody else as having less value than yourself. But it's even more common than all the isms that you can imagine. Maybe you go to the store and, and outside the store you see somebody who's, who's begging for, for something to eat or, or for some spare change. And you think to yourself, oh, here we go again. I do not have time for this today. Or maybe traffic's moving slowly and as you, as you finally get to, to the point where it was being caused by a rusty old clunker, you're, you're tempted to, to roll down your window and, and yell at them, hey, serves you right, you know, driving that old rusty clunker. What kind of person are you? Something like that. To view somebody with contempt is ultimately to view somebody else as being less important, less worthy, less valuable than you are. Ultimately, let's just be honest, that is one of the problems with abortion. That's one of the reasons that abortion is so deeply, deeply sinful. It's viewing the life of a human being made in the image of God as being less worthy than the life of the mother or the life of fill-in-the-blank, anybody else, anybody in society. Um, This past week I was watching a a video of some men who were standing outside of a Planned Parenthood, I believe, in the Phoenix area. Um, and, and they were sharing the gospel with people, and one man uh, objected to them standing outside of the, the, the abortion clinic, and he raises the objection with them that abortion's necessary because the population of the world needs to be restrained, needs, needs to be limited. This is a really common objection. Have you guys ever heard this objection? That you know the world has a, a high enough population. Okay, so so we so we need to have somebody die, right? And it's based on the idea that if somebody has to die, it should be unborn children. Why unborn children? If you want to limit 
the population of the planet? Why choose unborn children? Why not say, well, we think that we should just kill all Americans in order to limit the population of the earth? Or we should, we should, uh, we should kill all orphans in order to limit the population of the earth? Or we should, you know, we, we should just take a, 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 any arbitrary demographic. We should kill all 38-year-old women in order to eliminate a certain population from the earth and to, to pull the population back a little bit. We should kill all bald men with beards to, to pull back the earth's population. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, ultimately, it's, it's just any arbitrary demographic. Why not plug that in? That's how irrational that argument is. And you'd say, if, if I were to say any of those things, you'd say, you are absolutely out of your mind. You've got to be crazy to think that we should, uh, you know, kill, you know, somebody who's a grown adult. And I'd say, of course, it's a horrible idea. Of course, it's a ridiculous idea. But that's exactly why abortion is a horrible idea. See, abortion, they'll tell you that it's about women's rights. That is such a lie. That is such a lie. It is not about women's rights because abortion destroys the rights and destroys the lives of tomorrow's women and men. It's not about their rights, so you can't say it's about women's rights. It's only deemed acceptable because those who affirm it view the children in the womb as being less valuable, less important, less worthy than they are. And that is a deeply, deeply sinful attitude to have. But let me ask this. Are we all prone to view others with contempt at times? Have, we, have you ever had a bad day where you're prone to view anybody who gets in your way with contempt? We're all prone to it at times in one way or another. So do you think that you're a moral person? Then Jesus is talking to you. Do you view others with contempt? Then Jesus is talking to you. Are you even prone to think too highly of yourself at times? Then Jesus is talking to you. He's talking to me. Now we better get to the parable. I just want to make sure that you understand that Jesus isn't just talking to these religious leaders. He's not just talking to to people who we can easily identify as hypocrites because they're Pharisees or whatever. It's really easy when you hear this parable to think, Jesus isn't talking about me here. The Pharisees may have exemplified these qualities, but so do most Americans, friends. So do most Americans. And it's very important that we see and we understand and accept the fact that people are not basically good. That people are not basically moral or or worthy of God's love and acceptance. That might be the God of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, but that is not the God of the Bible who is holy and just and righteous and who will not acknowledge a righteousness that is less than His own. So what hope do we have? This parable is going to give us so much hope. It's going to give us great, great hope. Let's look at it. Verses 10 to 14. Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray. Sounds like he's starting a joke, doesn't it? Two men walked into a bar. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, 
I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what's this parable about? Verse 14 just told us it's about justification. What's justification? Justification is being declared innocent before God. That's what this is about. This parable is given for the sake of illustrating this great doctrine. Jesus doesn't conclude this parable by saying, and the one man went home and his prayers were answered. Because this isn't a parable about prayers. No, Jesus says he went back to his house justified. And so we have to understand that this parable answers with amazing clarity the age-old question. The question of the Philippian jailer that we find in Acts. What must I do to be saved? Given my utter failure throughout my life, to live up to God's holy standards of righteousness. How can I, how can anybody else be possibly reconciled to a holy and just and righteous God who is an all-consuming fire against my sin, against my unrighteousness? How can a just judge wash an unjust sinner clean? Thomas Watson is my favorite Puritan author. He said this of the doctrine of justification. He said, quote, Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. End quote. And that is not an exaggeration, friends. Getting this even slightly wrong has eternal consequences. Like with many of his parables, Jesus uses two people, two ordinary types of people, to create or to, to demonstrate a contrast. And in this case, he uses people uh, whom his audience, the people who were listening, would have, uh, would have had strong and very opposing feelings and opinions about the, the, the Pharisees, for example, they were highly respected. They, they were exalted and honored in the culture. And tax collectors, I mean, do I even have to say it? Because we have the same feelings every time April 15th rolls around, right? They hated them, except they hated them more than we do because they were actually their own countrymen working on behalf of Caesar. And so they were also traitors in one sense. They were hated. So let's put this into a, into a modern context. Maybe it would be the, the star quarterback who's so widely loved and, and uh, honored and respected, and, I don't know, maybe the President of the United States who everybody seems to hate with a completely irrational hatred. And what we see here is that each of these men goes up to the temple. And why do they go to the temple? They go to pray. 
And while their prayers do in one sense teach us how to pray or, or how, how not to pray, the important thing is not their words per se, but their attitudes as reflected in the way that they pray. Let me say it again. It's not their words that are important. It's their attitude as reflected in the words that they pray that's important. Does that make sense? We're not supposed to see what they pray as much as we're supposed to see the contrast in their demeanor before God. Jesus said that the Pharisee came to the temple and he stood and he did what? It's almost comical. Jesus says to them, he started praying to himself. Now, I I think that's an important detail. The ESV, the English Standard Version, which we used to use for our translation, says the Pharisee standing by himself prayed. But then, if you're using that translation, you'll see that there's a footnote uh, that lets you know that a more literal translation would be the Pharisee standing prayed to himself. So he's not just standing alone. No, Jesus tells us that he's standing and praying to his God. He's praying to himself. But here's the sick part and the scary part. He doesn't even realize it. He doesn't realize that he's just praying to himself. He's just muttering words to himself. But the truth is that he is his own God because he trusts in his own righteousness. And what does he pray? Well, the the essence of his prayer is this. Thank you, God, referring to himself. Thank you, God, that I, unlike all these other idiots around here, am so awesome that I am not like them. That I, I am righteous. That's the essence of his prayer. And what does he do that makes him so awesome in his own eyes? Well, pretty much everything. You know, uh, he's better than others in his opinion. He fasts twice a week. In fact, if there were eight days in the week, he'd probably fast three times. Well, these other filthy human beings that he's surrounded by didn't even fast once per year. And he pays tithes out of all that he gets. And Jesus confirms that for us elsewhere. So it's, it's probably true. I I don't doubt him for a second on either account. I bet he does fast twice a week. I bet he really does tithe 10% out of everything that he gets. And you know what? He feels really good about himself, about his goodness, about his righteousness for it. It's what sets him up as a leader in the community. He's so widely respected, and it's seen as such an honor just to even be in his presence I mean, I'm sure that he gets invited to somebody's house for dinner every night. Maybe, by the way, that's why he fasts twice a week, because there's somebody who asks him twice a week and, you know, to come over for dinner, and he said, I know better than to eat at her kitchen for dinner. So he passes on those days. Who knows? But the point is, he's highly respected because of all these things that he does to make himself righteous according to himself. But this other person, the hated one, the tax collector, What does he do? This is the contrast. What does he do when he goes up to the temple to pray? He sees himself as so unworthy of God's love and God's acceptance that he won't even dare to draw too near to the temple. So he stands in the distance. Given given his awareness of his sin, the filth of his sin and his trespasses, he stays a ways off in the distance. And he's so acutely 
and keenly aware of God's perfect holiness and His own personal failure to live up to God's standards of righteousness, that he isn't even bold or audacious enough to lift his eyes up to heaven. Why wouldn't he draw near the temple? Why wouldn't he lift his eyes to heaven? Because this is what he realizes. God is holy and pure. And I'm not. And I'm not. And he knows his impurities, he knows his sins better than all the people around him who hate his guts. He says, you could, if he was being honest, he'd say, you don't hate me enough. I'm, I'm far worse than you even imagine. This man has nothing to boast of, and he doesn't, unlike the Pharisee, he doesn't pretend that he does have something to boast of. And so what does he pray? Again, we're looking at the attitudes here. Not the words per se, but the attitudes. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner. Definite article. The sinner. In other words, if anybody is a sinner, God, it's me. He's, his attitude is a stark contrast to the attitude of the Pharisee. Because unlike the Pharisee, he, he, he understands that he has no goodness, no righteousness of his own. He's not worthy of God's love. He's not worthy of God's acceptance based on his own personal merits. He doesn't see any merit that he could possibly have before God. He knows that he isn't worthy or deserving of God's acceptance. He has sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. He's done what he shouldn't do. And he hasn't done what he should have done. He's fallen short of the glory of God. And he knows it. Oh, how he knows it. And it's like a burden that he has burning in the depths of his soul. The tax collector does the only thing that he can do. He throws himself entirely upon the mercy of God. Let's define mercy. Let's make sure that we understand that there's a difference between grace and mercy. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So what does he deserve? He deserves what all of us deserve. The full outpouring of the wrath of God. He deserves God's condemnation. He deserves to go to hell where he would be in torment for all of eternity. But, knowing this, he throws himself entirely upon God's mercy. He begs and pleads with God to not give him what he deserves, or at least to give him less than he deserves. And so Jesus concludes this parable with a startling twist. As, as so many of the parables have, there's, there's always a, a weird twist that would make you go, wait a minute, what? And the twist is this, the tax collector is the one who's justified, the one who's accepted, the one who's redeemed, the one who is forgiven by God. Let me ask you this. What do these two men have in common? What do the Pharisee and the tax collector have in common? They actually have a lot in common, right? I mean, they're both sinners. They're both uh, fallen. They're both sinful. Neither one of them had a righteousness that measured up to the righteousness of God. 
They both had rebelled willfully against their Creator. The the two men actually have a lot of things in common, but they have one very significant difference as far as God is concerned, and that's this. The tax collector approached God on the basis of God's mercy unto sinners who humble themselves before Him, while the Pharisee approached God on the basis of the Pharisee's false sense of righteousness within himself. The prayer of the tax collector. It's only seven words. Seven words in length. That might might be the shortest prayer in the Bible. I don't know. I, I haven't studied it or anything like that. But it's a very short prayer. But it reveals the profoundest truth. And that is that this filthy, degenerate sinner was forgiven. That he received the love and the acceptance of God. And it wasn't his words, it wasn't the the, the words of his prayer that washed him clean before God. So what was it? It was faith. It was faith. Do you you see that? I mean, let me put it this way. The tax collector is justified because he trusted in God's goodness rather than trusting in his own goodness. And that's faith. Faith. The Pharisee was not justified. He was not redeemed. He was not forgiven because he continued to trust in his own righteousness before God. He figured that that would be good enough for him to get into heaven with. The only way to have a righteousness that God accepts is for God in His mercy to impute. That means to transfer or to to credit His own perfect righteousness unto sinners. Because ours is not good enough. Our righteousness is not good enough. The best we have to offer are filthy rags. But Jesus came. Fully God. Fully man. He was fully obedient to the will of the Father. He fully kept the law. He fulfilled it all. He lived a life of perfect, unflinching obedience. He did what we are not able to do. He lived a sinless life. And yet He died a sinner's death. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And one of the thieves mocked Him. What did the other one do? The other one pleaded with Him and begged Him to remember Him. Why did He beg Jesus to remember Him? Because He knew that He was worthy of God's wrath and that His only hope was the righteousness of the man on the cross next to Him being given to him. He had faith in Christ, and thus he, like the hypothetical tax collector in the parable, was justified. He was forgiven, not on his own merit, not on the basis of of what he deserved, but on Christ's merit, received through faith. Friends, there are so many people in our day and age who are turning from this doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. But this parable is a command for us to look away from ourselves, to look away from what we perceive as our own goodness, and to see it for what it is, its filth, and instead to look to Christ, who lived the life that every single one of us should have lived, and He died the death that every single one of us deserved to die, taking our sins upon Himself and bearing the wrath of God as our substitute in our place. 
And He placed, He imputed His own perfect righteousness upon us so that when we stand before Him in judgment one day, we will be standing not in our own righteousness, but we will be standing in righteousness, in the very righteousness of God. Dressed in His righteousness alone. That is what we need. That's our greatest need. is to be dressed in His robes of righteousness. And this is how we answer the question. This is how God provides righteousness for sinners and yet remains just. He gives, he, he, he imputes, He credits, transfers, whatever word you want to use. He puts His own perfect righteousness on the sinner. And when we turn from trusting in ourselves and from trusting in our own goodness to trusting in Christ, this is the Gospel. We're, we're washed new. And not only are we washed new, but we are united to Christ so that all that He did is credited to us, is imputed to us in the same way that all we did was credited or imputed to Him on Calvary. His worthiness His righteousness. His moral perfection. All the things that we don't have that only Christ has. It's all counted towards sinners who will humble themselves before the Lord and trust in Him. It is the height of arrogance to pretend that you don't need this righteousness of God. And it is the highest insult to pretend before Him that your righteousness is equal to to His. Those who come to Him full of themselves, He will send away empty. But if you will humble yourself before the Lord, He will lift you up. Only Christ's righteousness is sufficient, friends. Only Christ's righteousness. Believe that, and you will not only receive mercy, that is, not getting what you do deserve, You'll not only receive mercy, but you'll also receive grace, getting what you don't deserve. And that is Christ's own justifying righteousness credited to you. And with that, the love and acceptance of God unto salvation on the merit and for the glory of Christ alone. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank You for being a God who is perfectly just. Because without that, the universe would be in chaos. We thank You for being a God who is perfectly righteous. Because without that, there would be complete anarchy. And we thank You for Your sovereignty that You're sovereign over all things and that You rule in righteousness and justice. And we confess before You, Lord, in truth, we confess before You that we have all fallen short of Your standards of righteousness and that we have no righteousness of our own. And so in ourselves, Lord, we have no hope of your love or acceptance. And so we, we thank you and we praise you 
with joyfulness in our hearts that you sent your own son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. The life that you demand we live. And he died the death that we deserve to die in order that all who trust in him will be credited with his righteousness. What unsearchable wisdom, Father. What unsearchable wisdom that you would come up with this plan from eternity past. What great wisdom, what, what great grace that you would save sinners by giving them your own righteousness. And so we pray, God, that you would give us an accurate view of who you are and who we are and thus our desperate need for your righteousness. And we thank you that it is given to us freely by the working of your word and your spirit within us. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. May our lives be transformed by the truth of this parable for the glory of your only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.